Pittsburgh. I am so jazzed to chat with one of my favorite people on the planet. He is a cyclist, author, television commentator, the man from the Tour de France, Mr. Bob Roll. Bob Key, how you doing, buddy? Doing great, Bob. Thanks for uh, engaging me in this. This is going to be fun. I, I'm really stoked about this. Yeah, so born, born in NorCal, born in Oakland. Uh, yeah. And I, I loved reading that you're... People probably can't relate to this, but you guys, your family, every night ate dinner together, and actually, each kid, or like four kids, their their job was to basically say some, prepare a story from the day. Yes, and also there was a for a nickel if you could stump the family, you got a nickel. If somebody knew the answer to the question you asked, they got the nickel. So there was incentive. Uh, like in those days, powerful incentive. <laughs> yeah, nickel's powerful. Yeah, come up with a factoid that you could dazzle the family with. And of course, you had to entertain our parents throughout. So <laughs> those meals went on for a long time, but it did give all of us a, the uh, maybe a little bit um, of an ability to tell and you know keep a story, even if there's a lot of different... Right. Uh, keep like, an audience engaged. Words. Yeah. In an audience that was looking to shut you down. <laughs> yes. And everybody was always trying to, you know, interject. So listening and telling stories became a big part of, uh, <laughs> of uh, every single evening. And it drove me crazy. And I needed to do many miles on the bicycle by myself to cure myself of that. But uh, <laughs> it has served me well in the intervening years. <laughs> so what were your sports growing up? Um, I think. Little League Baseball was the first participation sport. Yeah. But we grew up on this um, sort of warren of cul-de-sacs. And in those days, every family had four, five, six kids. So there was, in within walking distance, 500 kids. And so we were always building forts, playing kick the can, frisbee, yeah. trying to hula hoop, skateboards that just come out. So it was... Um, it was a really interesting time and place to grow up. And I don't know if anywhere, you know, kids grow up like that, um, you know, not just the United States, but anywhere yeah. um, where you have so many children going bananas, completely unsupervised, basically all day, except at school. So breakfast and dinner, otherwise out of the house. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and you were, you also had to have, there was an art form on our block of, you know, I'd go to your house and say, hey, Bob, we're going to be playing baseball in the street. Yeah. And what's the yep. first thing you're going to say is, who else is playing? Because you don't want to be the only guy. <laughs> and so I'd say, oh, I got Larry and Jimmy and Donnie. And then, you know, have to go to their house and get them in because now I got you in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a great place to grow up in time for us. So running. People don't yeah. realize that, that Bob Roll was a runner. You run cross country and track? In high school, yeah. And AAU in eighth grade. So I started with the AAU age group program uh, in Northern California, very competitive and uh, was pretty fast, but not the fastest guy in the state by any means. But then in high school, we had a great team, great coach, and it was incredibly competitive. Like half of the Olympic team came from NorCal in those days. So True. Um, I thought it was lame running, you know, really fast times because you get you know, do a 155-880 as a sophomore and get fourth in a race. And like, oh, I'm fourth. My parents were so disappointed. 
I have like, all they knew was fourth. They didn't know the time. No, they didn't know. So it would have been the fastest time in any other state except California, just about. So, anyways, so the running it was. Uh, I mean, we ran everywhere all the time. Right. And uh, through that, I met Scott Molina. And exactly. He was a phenomenal athlete, way ahead of me when we started. Way, way, way ahead. And he figured out that triathlon is gonna was gonna be a big thing and was one of the early superstars of triathlon and made, you know, he, he was the first guy to make money. <laughs> he really was. He have was a house, guy. you know, have a car, all of that stuff in the uh, in the early eighties, which so, uh, to me was like that is phenomenal. How am I going to do that? <laughs> so did you guys both get into cycling at about the same time? He went straight to triathlon. Uh, he might have done a couple of bike races, but he was doing these ultra, ultra distance runs, 50 and 100 mile races. Yeah. And by half an hour, you know, just ludicrously. I mean, just unbelievable. I mean, he had kids already, so he was already, you know, trying to pay his mortgage and stuff. <laughs> And we, we were like still like children, the rest of us, but Scott was, he was light years ahead of us, but he, I don't think he raced bikes and he might've done some races during his triathlon career, but he, you know, he saw the prize list in Kona and was like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> so for you, but you guys rode together, right? I remember yes, he, hearing yeah. 200 mile rides to Chico yeah. and things like yeah. that. He would swim in the morning while I was still sleeping. Then we would ride together all day. And then he would go for a run after we were done riding. And I was laid out for two or three days after these big rides, you know, and he just, yeah, he, he, he was, I mean, I was like, there's no way I need some time to think. I can't, <laughs> I can't be up that early. I'm sleeping. I can't, there's just no way I could get up that early to, to do some swimming and then run afterwards. I had to, yeah, there's no way I could do that. So, and Scott was just really phenomenal. His work ethic was astounding, really was amazing. Well, I remember him telling me once that when he got into the sport, because he knew enough sports science to know that, that the top swimmers were swimming 30,000, 40,000 meters a week. The top cyclists were going three to 500 miles a week and the top runners were 80 to 100. So I'll just put all those together and I'll become really good if I don't die. You, <laughs> you was right. <laughs> so... He, you, know, you guys would do like 200 mile rides, yeah. uh, buy a chicken at a 7-Eleven and yeah. you know, keep riding. Yep. Yeah, and awesome. This is, this is before the days of polypro and things like that. How'd you guys stay warm? Um, I had some of my mom's cashmere sweaters and I would just layer them. <laughs> the sleeves only came up to about here. <laughs> but I would put two or three uh, you know, t-shirt and then a couple of sweaters. And if it was really cold and rainy, like three sweaters and, uh, stayed warm that way. <laughs> or, um, my dad's, um, plaid shirts that were made yes. out of wool, those Pendleton shirts. And I would just ride in that. I mean, there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't rain jackets. There wasn't, uh, I mean, there were, that was just starting to come in. So a couple of years into, riding in bad weather all the time the the clothing became much better but initially it was with scott it was like you know we go to the thrift store and buy some old sweaters and for a dollar and that was <laughs> that was our technical gear for the winter <laughs> melina said he loved your mother's sweaters <laughs> it was like hey those are pretty sweet they were awesome they were they were yeah they i don't know 
I haven't tried to use one in a while, but I'm sure they're still keep you warm. <laughs> so what were you guys riding? What type of bikes were you riding? Was, you have good oh, quality they were, bikes. They were pure rubbish. <laughs> Steel bike, uh, whatever parts you could find, and lots of tires. You know, we had sew-up tires in those days, you know, tubulars. So had to carry a couple of those everywhere you went. And did a lot of hitchhiking when you would run out of tires because you had three flats. <laughs> What's one of the wildest experiences that you and Melina had riding together? I'll tell you, he saved my life one time. What happened? We were we rode like 150 miles from Pittsburgh to like the foot of the Sierras and then started riding back through the Delta. So Delta dead flat. And I think he was trying to simulate the, the long time trial courses of the of the Ironman. So we're doing yeah. a huge ride. And uh, I don't remember exactly how we got tangled up but these levee roads super narrow and cars are going like 90 miles an hour boom, right past your ear and then they had never seen cyclists you know there was no bike paths and um we got tangled up and i fell off of this levee and it was built with these giant rocks and i i cascaded down on the on my head and was knocked out no helmet no helmet no that they hadn't even invented helmets yet i mean there might have been the early bell that you know but i just i didn't have enough money for a helmet i can't yeah 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 plus i don't know this is they're not required yeah, it's completely different to explain this to people now it seems completely insane but uh was i had it i was knocked out and i started coming to and Scott was, you know, carrying me up from the bottom of the levee to, to try to flag a car down. Yeah. And he flagged down uh, a van, and I think that they were sniffing glue out on the levee. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> and Scott was completely flipped out, and I had a giant cut on the back of my head, so I was bleeding you know, down my shoulders. And I was like, what is this stuff? Oh my God. And coming in and out of consciousness. And, and the guys were like, the van was full of fumes. And so that wasn't that, you know, the best, but he went straight to the emergency room, the nearest emergency room and dropped me off and bolted. <laughs> but if I was by myself and did that, I'd still be there. Just yeah, exactly. So Scott saved my life. That was the craziest thing that happened in those days. <laughs> Now, you were, Scott was obviously focused on triathlon. Were you thinking of, you were bike racing? Yes, I had started bike racing. This is probably 1981, maybe 1982. So I, I think he might have done an Ironman already. He did. Point. He did 81. Yeah. He okay. came over to 81. And he, he ended up collapsing. He saw John Howard, who was leading the race, and he's thinking, oh, I'll catch him. He looks like crap. I'm going to catch him. Next thing he knows, he's on a stretcher with all his skin peeling off. <laughs> he got he got burnt so bad, right? Yep. He's yeah. like he said he was like a he snake. He basically yeah. lost his skin. I remember him the next day when he got home, and he was pulling like like giant. I was like, oh mercy, Scott, what happened? He's like, yeah, I miscalculated. I'm like, who? You think? So, <laughs> were you having success as a bike racer? Um, so in those days, there was um, category uh, four, mm -hmm. was basic entry level, and then there was three, and two and one were basically the same 
right category one two and the system is still you know it's a little bit different now juniors under 23 and elite level um and so and then world tours you know the highest level um so in northern california also very competitive in cycling in those days right and so cat four races were pretty hard and to upgrade to category two you had to win three category four races then three category two races or excuse me yeah. three cat three races um so in six races i had you know i won six in a row <laughs> wow yeah so they upgraded me to cat two and then it became a lot more difficult to and i think berkeley hills road race was my first category two one two race and i was fifth or sixth yep um and the, you know the some of the best guys in the country were racing and it's a really hard hilly road race you know a hundred mile road race and you know i didn't have any feeders i didn't have any you know i had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and uh a one water bottle for 100 hilly miles in the east bay heat ah. and so i knew i had to sip it <laughs> could only take a little bit so much and then i remember the last 10 miles it was completely delirious and uh so it took a long time you know to learn the tactics and what's required um to be competitive and eventually met mike neal yes who was uh, already a legend and had been one of the very first road racing professionals uh in europe after doing good in the 76 olympics turned pro so uh -huh. along with greg lamont and george mount one of the very first americans to race professionally on the road in europe and he had come he he was also from oakland from just north of oakland um El Sobrante, I think. And uh, and he became the coach of 7-Eleven and uh, was coaching uh, a team called uh, CD Turin in Northern California. Yeah. And so asked me to join that, became my coach and was my coach my whole uh, road racing career, actually. So my I, I owe a huge debt to Mike Neal for my career. So what brought you from, you know, from being in the u.s to deciding you're going to go race in europe because you think about it i think back then to make money in the states was really more of a criterion based uh racing right and, and that's where the money was and that's not really your strong suit compared to more of a long hard yeah i need racing. a lot i need 250ks to <laughs> yeah to warm up right to get yeah so is that what brought you to europe the, the racing suited you more yeah it's a, it suited me and i was fascinated by it um i saw CBS's coverage of Perry Bay and maybe 1982 and I told everybody in the Berkeley Bike Club I'm doing that even though they had dropped me every single <laughs> every single club ride <laughs> for for months and and then uh in 1986 I was there <laughs> so they're watching on TV the guy yeah. that they drop every week yeah. and you're racing in Perry Bay yeah, like I this announced... guy can't even race with us what the hell <laughs> I announced to the club, oh, I, I'm doing that. I am going to be doing that. And they're like, dude, whatever. <laughs> and it was everybody's goal was to race in Europe as a professional. Right. Um, there wasn't a sort of domestic, you know, road There's race. No money here. Yeah, yeah. There, was, there wasn't any big races at that time. Although there's some historical races that were, you know, Tour of Nevada City, Tour of Somerville, right. a lot of big road races in the United States. But and the Coors Classic had already started. Um, yeah. the Red Zinger and then the Coors Classic, but you know, Perry Roubaix, 
Tour de France, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, Tour of Lombardia, those, you know, Tour of Italy, Tour of Spain, that was what everybody was fascinated with and fixated on everybody. And so I sort of was interested because of the Northern, Northern California cycling scene and having seen uh, Perry Roubaix on TV, that really inspired me to want to do that. And so when our team was invited, it was, to me, it was like a dream come true. It was of course. Team 7-Eleven that was really, and I wanted to finish, even though that's <laughs> a pretty, uh, you know, it's probably my third or fourth professional race, actually. And uh, I was really desperate to finish. And I think I was the only guy on the team that did finish that particular edition. And so it, the learning process started all over again, from just the basics of the sport to racing in Europe at the highest level. Um, so I had enough tenacity and ability to, yeah. to, to make my dreams come true. <laughs> I don't think people realize that. So Molina was telling me he was getting postcards from you from, and you were living under a bridge in a tent or something. I like lived that. in, you know, to make my bones over there, there was no, um, now there's all kinds of resources. Right. And you just have to Google, you know, racing in Europe, you know. <laughs> yeah. And you can have, you know, a million pages of resources. Yeah. And imagine you don't have that and you just fly over there. Um, and uh, so before I started racing for 7-Eleven and after I'd just done a year domestically, I'm like, Europe is where it's at. I'm going and this is, these are the resources I have. <laughs> yeah. I have a thousand dollars. I have to live for eight months. And so there was a camping uh, area. Um, I should publish a photo of me standing in front of my tent, but I lived in a tent for, you know, for six or seven months in Switzerland. Yeah. All the time. Um, had a rain jacket at that point. So if, <laughs> if not, I would have died of hypothermia, but, uh, and in Switzerland, I was on a, a Swiss team yep. uh, from, from the French speaking part from uh, Geneva. And uh, so you have your license and you can go two or three times a week and race all over the country. And you can take your bike on the train, go to the town, sign on, race, you can either ride home, take the train home. Uh, and so that was a year that it's sort of, there was no way for me to communicate with anybody except write postcards. And I didn't have an address. So <laughs> I, and Scott was one of the only people that I had his address. <laughs> so I, and I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't speak Swissy Dutch, you know, yes. it was a dialect that was completely impossible for me to learn. And so I, I barely spoke to anybody for many, many months. In the races, I had no idea what they were saying. I hadn't completely clueless. But they had a schedule for the yeah. year and the time and the town. And I just would go all over on the train in Switzerland and race. So wait, that, was all, that was really fun. I think Davis Finney told me when he, he and Kiefel, I think they were like, they, did they run into you by your yes. tent or something? And then no, <laughs> next, next funny, thing you know, you're on Team 7-Eleven? One of the biggest stage races for amateurs yeah. and where Eastern Bloc riders could race against the European was called the William Tell. Yeah. And it was a stage race for amateurs, two weeks, you know, really hard stage race, as hard as a tour of Switzerland. And Davis, after the 84 Olympics and Ron Kiefel and Andy Hampston yeah. um, had been, they were on the national team and they were racing that. And so the last day finished in Zurich. So I rode over from my tent 
and just watched the race finish. And Davis won. Yeah. Davis won the, the, the final stage. And it was a very impressive. I was like, wait, I know that dude. <laughs> it's Davis Finney. I was like, so I went, I followed them to the team car just to say hi. And then they're like, come over to the hotel and have lunch. And I'm like, free lunch. Oh, <laughs> yes, baby. And uh, so went over to the hotel and Davis wanted to go home. And the, the rest of the team was going to Italy yeah. to keep racing. For the, and they invited me to go to Italy with them. I mean, I was there next morning, 7 a.m. With, with my little satchel packed for a week of free food in Italy and, and three hard races. And I, I was flying. Once I started to get food, enough food yes. to have nutrition, I was flying in those races. So the, teams, the team coaches were like, we've never even heard of you. And I knew some of the riders, so I kind of had started to figure out the tactics. Yeah. And so we... We did, uh, we did two races that were flat, big field sprints. And then we had a, a hilly road race. And I, 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 was, I pushed on the pedal so hard that the spokes pulled out of the rear hub and my wheel disintegrated in the finale. And I had, I had one guy to beat in the sprint. And I started, like, <laughs> nothing's happening. And I looked out and my whole rear wheel disintegrated and I didn't have a spare wheel, you know? So I, I got smoked. The, the pack caught me and, and I had to walk across the finish line. And I was like, that was pretty devastating. But I was, I was happy that, <laughs> that I, I stopped all the guys on the national team on that day. <laughs> I don't think people understand because back then Americans were sort of a, a really not a factor in Europe, right? And when Team 7-Eleven started, you guys were sort of the bad news bears. You know, you had your little little motorhome, everybody's got their huge buses, and you guys are going to races. And that Talk a little about just, I remember, I think you told me once that one time you guys showed up at a race, and your team coordinator showed up like, he was three <laughs> days late, right? You guys are all lined up, you have no bikes, yeah. no nothing, and you what you see this guy across the pitch coming yeah. at you yeah the tour of so the first year was 85 yeah the first year we did the tour was 86 and, and the tour there's tons of resources you know every team is basically on the same level resource-wise at tour de france because all the hotels have already been provided for all right. the meals uh all of the technical support and that is not the case <laughs> in those days in the smaller races and there was a lot of by hook or crook getting across Europe and we didn't have a place over there to stay so there was no home base so we were going from one hotel to the next and uh, we traveled with our bikes on the airplane and our team suitcases and uh, we had done the tour of Denmark and the next day we flew to the tour of Britain and it started on the on the Wednesday, so Wednesday through Sunday, we have Tour of Britain, and the team car, we had one sedan, <laughs> that was it, <laughs> and six guys in the sedan, so, <laughs> and so they got, they missed the ferry across the channel from Denmark to, I think we started in Edinburgh, so they yeah. had to take the ferry, 
uh, across to wherever and then drive up to Scotland and miss the ferry. The next one was sold out. So they were a couple of days late and had all of our suitcases and all of our bikes. So we're at, we walked to the start <laughs> and we didn't have any, we didn't have anything. And we're, the, you know, I remember Alex Dita, uh, gosh, Eric Hayden was on that team. Yeah. Um, Jens Vagerby, I think this is, so this is 87. So we had started to, you know, know a little bit what to do, but still it was, it was hit or miss. And so <laughs> the race promoter who had invited us just couldn't believe we didn't, <laughs> didn't, we have, didn't it. have anything. And we had no way to tell him beforehand. We're at the dormitory with all, we're just, you know, like every other team. <laughs> and so he's like, what? What the heck? Where, where's your numbers? Where's your bikes? Where's your, where's your uniform? We're like, yeah, it hasn't gotten here yet. And he's like, this race is starting in 20 minutes. And the, the whole pro peloton is lined up there. Eric Van Der Arden and Laurent Fignon and Alan Piper. <laughs> and we're like, sorry. <laughs> well, what can we do? And then we see the car, the team car coming in, the bikes are on top. <laughs> and uh, driving 90 miles an hour. And it started in this castle and there was no way to get to the castle because the roads were closed for the race, except drive across the lawn. And so the whole peloton looked. <laughs> so we kitted up, grabbed our bikes off the top. Um, and we were pinning our numbers on in the neutral section of the race. <laughs> and, and then the race turned out pretty good. I had the famous episode a few days later of clipping out in, in the middle of Cardiff Castle and losing a stage. And the next day, Jens Vagerby, um, they rang the bell, right? And one lap to go. He takes off, win wins. And as he was coming across the line, they rang the bell again for, <laughs> for another lap. And there was a lap counter. This is in downtown London. And I saw two to go and heard the bell. I'm like, oh, that's not right, you know? And so we lost two stages in two days. Oh. And, and uh, I mean, it was a lot of <laughs> crazy disorganizational type of things going on. But, you know, that gave us a chance through, you know, losing to learn how to win big races and not make those kind of mistakes, those basic mistakes. But... Uh, the early days were pretty, were, you know, it was hard. It's hard to laugh at losing a professional bike race. Yeah. I, and I still haven't gotten over losing <laughs> the race because my pedal disintegrated when I was yeah. about to win a stage of the Tour of Britain. I'm like, and I was in the breakaway with one other guy, passed him with, you know, 100 meters to go. Foot and we're on the cobbles in the center of Cardiff Castle, and you know I was trying to pedal with one with one leg, but the chain had fallen off because the cobbles were so rough, and so in spite of that, I barely lost by like that much, and I was so I was so angry. Oh my god! And it took another year to to have a chance to win another race for me, you know. So you you had to be tenacious. You couldn't. And you had to accept the fact that there was going to be a lot of mistakes made. So. <laughs>
a lot of people coming from the U.S. you know have problems with the food, the language, being away from home. You're one of those guys who just seem to really love it. Yeah, the, the languages, the the culture, yeah. every aspect of it, and and almost was like I don't really want to go home. I sort of like it here. Yeah, I could have stayed for you know I, I did miss the states and miss right. being home and miss being you know doing my training regime in the winter time. Right. Um. So. By October, I was pretty, you know, but I, you know, get there in February. Yeah. I wasn't bored until October. That's pretty good average. <laughs> That's really good. So three-time Tour de France, three-time Giro. My favorite Giro story was 88, obviously. Yeah. Gavia Pass, Snowfall, Snowstorm, right. Andy yeah. Hampston. Would you have to ride back and forth to help Andy out? How many times? Uh, so, I mean, the, the weather was like completely bonkers we did a couple of climbs before the gavia it was already snowing and these were like half the altitude and so andy you know was he had the wherewithal to understand like we're at four thousand feet it's snowing we're going to nine thousand feet it's gonna be insane so he's like could you go get some gloves you know so it you know and it takes a while to get off the back of the peloton find the team car get back through the peloton um and you see that in every race on tv all the time like the the teammates going back and it's like okay this <laughs> i feel it's crazy <laughs> it means you're going back and then you have to yeah. go past all these yeah. top you're passing the best cyclists in the world to go right. get up to and andy andy had this, like special uh stretch gore-tex technical gear that he didn't want to lose he couldn't just chuck it on the side of the road so on the Gavia Pass, he asked me to take his jacket because, you know, when you're climbing, you're generating enough warmth. You don't need a big, heavy, you know, weatherproof jacket like that. So I took that back to the team car. And when I got there, the team car had a pair of, you know, warm, dry gloves for Andy. <laughs> Not for you, but no, for Andy. No, no, no. And he said, and the team... Mike Neal said, take these up to Andy. I'm like, dude, I just came from there. <laughs> and this is on the Gavia Pass. You know, my job's done. Andy was third wheel going into the Gavia Pass. I'm like, I can, you know, go nice. And so, yeah. And so halfway up the climb, I had to catch the leaders. <laughs> and I was like yelling at him from a switch back down. Like, Andy, I have your gloves. And he's like, I know, bring them over here. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. So made a big effort and uh and you know he was warm and dry enough to take the leader's jersey at the end of that stage whereas it was so insane and uh, you know they'll never have a that were they have a extreme weather protocol now and they'll right. never see a race like that ever again ever again professional cycling <laughs> which is a good thing you know guys had hypothermia myself included yes a lot of guys got into cars because they thought oh this must be canceled you can't ride through the snow and drove off the top of the final climb the gavia yeah. to the finish um but it was so it was so insane that there were only maybe 35 or 40 guys that made the time limit that actually rode the whole course that day you know wow. so you can't have the giro for another 10 days with 30 guys <laughs> so Seven they, everybody was allowed back in the next day and then we had a real fight after that for the rest of the giro Seven-time Paris-Roubaix. Was that your favorite race, Paris-Roubaix? Well, it's the one that I thought I could do the best at, you know? Yeah. 
and I did race the finale a couple of times, which, you know, when you see that Matt Heyman, for example, had done it 15 times before he won, it's just, that is such a special race. And, it, you know, it's the first time I saw uh, professional cycling from Europe. And so I always made that a, a focus of my spring campaign. And we were not a classics team. <laughs> a lot of times Ron Kiefel and I, or myself, or Ron Kiefel by himself, were the only guys doing the finale on the team until we had Steve Bauer. And he joined in 1990. And then it was a different there's a guy that can win these races. And, right, so, right. and so that, you know, we were good in the stage race. I had won the Giro before that tour of Switzerland, um, a lot of other big races, but Steve Bauer brought uh, a chance to do well in the classics, like actually get big results. And he lost Paris-Roubaix by, by uh, two millimeters in 1990 um, for 7-Eleven. And so, yeah, but my focus was, and my abilities, were one day super long yes. yeah and uh Perry Roubaix was was in and uh you know Liege best on Liege was one yes. of Milano San Remo and always there um in the finale but you need numbers to win those and when you see like nowadays the team the team with two or three guys in the last 20 mm -hmm. have a huge advantage and unless you're on a spectacular day usually the team with the numbers like Quick step, we see that a lot. Yumbo Visma, we see that a lot. Teams with that kind of focus and that kind of horsepower and the teammates, they win the classics. That hasn't changed since I was a pro. So you need more than one guy. <laughs> you can't, in a one day race, you can't overcome two or three really strong guys. Uh, it's just not possible. So one time you and I were chatting about, you know, Le Monde and Fignon in 89 and how on the last stage, Le Mans made up so much ground and beat Fignon. But you brought up a great point that, okay, it's not like they didn't know about the benefit of Arrow, right? Earlier in the, in the tour, Le Mans had gained a lot of ground. There was a long time trail, much longer than the last day in the 89 tour. And Greg took something like two and a half minutes out of Fignon with uh, Boone Lennon's yes. Arrow bars and disc wheel and Arrow helmet. And, and so I, I, I'm like, guys... <laughs> <laughs> do the math <laughs> in 50 k's he took three minutes out of you what's he going to do to you in 30 k's you only have a 58 second advantage yeah do the math maybe try them you also have two and a half weeks in between those stages to maybe try them out maybe get a stopwatch maybe see how it feels you know you got a couple rest days try this you know and I, I don't know if they just didn't believe in what they were seeing, um, but they, you know, Fignon, that was his last chance to win the A Tour de France, really. Exactly. And uh, it, it, you know, for American cycling. <laughs> and you know what ties it all together for me is the person that figured that out was an American, was Boone Lennon. Yes. Uh, from, from Idaho, right? Yep, he's from Idaho. And he gave a pair to Greg. Greg tried him, and he's like, I'm going twice as fast at the same heart rate. <laughs> yeah. This is it, wasn't, it wasn't brain surgery. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, they're, they're, um, 
traditionalism and hubris. And Fignon was flying. He was third on that stage, just a couple of seconds slower than his teammate, Thierry Marie, who was, who was uh, uh, second on the stage. And they, that team had been, they had used a lot of innovation over the years. Disc wheels, uh, they sure. had an airfoil on one of the saddles, uh, super, you know, tiered, you know, not by any stretch of the imagination, aerodynamic compared to today. But they had been on the cutting edge of the technology that was available. So it really baffled me that they wouldn't go with these, uh, an obvious aerodynamic advantage. And now it's across the board, you know. Oh. If you were to say to somebody that not that long ago, people didn't believe this was an advantage, <laughs> they would laugh at you. It's like, like the earth is flat, people. Like, right. Well, it's funny in our world in triathlon, you look at Mark Allen, I think his best time was 428 in the bike ride over there. Now they're going, you know, 4, 404, right? And the swim and the run haven't changed that much. It's a technology, it's a positioning, yeah. it's the aerodynamics, all of that. So for you, when you left Rhodes and went to mountain bike, I think you did about 10 years of mountain biking. Um, uh, and what I still remember 93, I think it was Cactus Cup, where you crashed you freaking nearly bled out. Was that a cactus? <laughs> I hit this artery right here and there's still a scar there. <laughs> oh my God. From, from... Uh, it was a it was this innocuous little piece of sandstone. Yeah. And it, had, it was just a little lip over a, you know, I had never ridden off-road before. And I hit this little culvert and went, you know, uh over the bars. Yeah. And just it scraped this on the sandstone and put a hole in rather than cut straight through it if it had cut all the way through the you know the coagulants stopped the bleeding but because there was a hole there it was just shooting out and i had i was in the middle of the desert and i had three more miles to do this time trial so when i got to the finish line like my whole body was covered in blood you know the only thing that didn't have blood on it was my other arm <laughs> so you're coming like and people are like is bob roll wearing tights like it's like it's a hundred degrees out here. So yeah, that, and I didn't, it didn't hurt, you know, I think I finished 11th or 12th <laughs> in the time trial, but I was trying to hold, like hold my, yeah, my arm up in the air. So it wouldn't be bleeding all over. <laughs> straight to the emergency room in Scottsdale. <laughs> so your transition from, you know, road to mountain to becoming a commentator, uh, you know, and really one of the more renowned, people in the industry uh, did that did it surprise you because obviously you grew up sitting at the kitchen table talking yeah. story yeah it, it seemed like this was sort of a natural transition for you what's funny because outdoor life network was uh the only yeah. people covering cycling in those days and they started with mountain bike coverage yep and i was racing mountain bikes and winding down my career and they said would you like to try some commentary uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to try that. So that first was the World Championships in Mont Saint Anne in 1998, I believe, and that was I don't like 75 hours of live TV. We did every single junior downhill, but I was racing, so I knew everybody. Yeah. And uh, the only thing I didn't know how to do is stop talking for the commercials. <laughs> <laughs> I've always had that problem too. Yeah. Yeah, and the producer was like. He's like, he's, he's like, yeah, yeah. Behind the camera. Lap like, it up. <laughs> I'm like, what's his problem? I'm talking. Yeah. And one thing at our dinner table, if you interrupted, 
you would get punished. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you would lose your chance to talk. So we learned not to interrupt. So I'm like, this dude is interrupting me. What's he doing? Trouble. <laughs> so, so it was not as smooth as transition as you would imagine, but the actual commentary was, you know, well-informed enough to be hired permanently. And then they transitioned from mountain biking to road racing when yep. they got the rights to the Tour de France starting in 2001. And they're like, wait a minute, this guy did the Tour de France already. <laughs> this guy is like, perfect. I already been a road racer in Europe. So I started in, you know, we started doing more road racing in 2001. And consequently, uh, Lance Armstrong had started winning the Tour de France in 1999. And everybody was curious about it. It actually made that network very valuable. Um, Absolutely. And, and you I would, happened yeah. to be in the right place at the right time. And then, well, and also, Lance was a guy who you were down in, in Boone with after yeah. he was coming back from, from cancer to what, eight days of just horrific weather and long rides yeah. and, and really helped him get his love back of cycling. That was 96. 96, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, well, yeah. no, he was diagnosed, was it 96 or 98? Well, either way. 98, you're right. Yeah, 98. It, that was 1998. So, yeah, he had 97. He was unwell. Yes. Went through treatment. And then um, that, in 99, <laughs> was one of the most astounding comebacks. in, And that has gotten, um, I think, a little bit, you know, can, everything that's happened since then. <laughs> right. The basic story, though, is, you know, Lance had cancer, nearly yeah. died, and a couple, two and a half years later, won the Tour de France. I mean, that actually happened. Right. <laughs> and people don't, I don't think people have lost uh, how, how desperate it was for Lance in those early days after his diagnosis and the early part of his treatment. Right. And, uh, and to see that, you know, per personally uphand, you know, like firsthand, pers and then see him win the Tour de France and have already tried to win the Tour de France <laughs> and tried with my teammates to win right. the Tour de France and know like, oh my God. So, you know, not knowing everything that was going on, it, for me, when I look back at that, I'm glad I didn't know all that stuff, you know, because, and for people, for millions of people suffering with cancer at the time, it was a massive accomplishment and an unbelievable comeback that can't be denied really what what they can't deny is uh how many people he inspired to get off the couch and no matter what they were dealing with yeah to attack life yes because that's what he represented so yeah as i, as I look around my house here i've got three ride for the moroses post posters sitting in front of me Plus, I've got the, you know, Giro glasses that they did when Lance won the first tour and <laughs> all that type of stuff. So Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's a complicated story. Let's it's say. a, it's, it's, con we're conflicted. You know, yeah, a lot of layers to it. A lot of layers. Um, so we have a, okay, here's, we have a question from uh, one of our viewers. Who is the greatest cyclist you have covered at Tour de France? Wow. Mm, that I've. Cover. I think we're seeing right now is Tade Pogacar. Yes, he's so they're comparing him to Eddie Merckx now because every time he races, he tries to win. Like it doesn't matter if it's February or October. It doesn't matter if it's the Olympics, um, a small stage race in Slovenia. 
um, or the Tour de France. And he's tried it twice and won both. And it doesn't seem like anybody's at, is going to be able to beat him for unless there's some sort of, you know, crash or something or, like that. Yeah, yeah, some silly, yeah, bad luck. So I think Tade Pogacar is the most talented cycle. I mean, he won Liege Best on Liege, Tour de France. <laughs> uh, I just, everything he does, he he's very close to winning or wins every single race he does. And it's amazing to the level of cycling to have somebody like that in this day and age. It's really astounding how good Tadej Pogacar is time trial. He'll sprint you like Eddie Merckx would yeah. sprint you. <laughs> oh yeah. You're not, you know, Nairo Quintana probably won't sprint you <laughs> um, on a flat stage, but that is that level of, competitiveness and ability and talent it's it's been a the last couple of years has been great to watch him it hasn't made the racing boring especially uh the first year he won the tour de france because primos roglic had the jersey and was the dominant rider till the last time trial um and so last year he was close to the best and then in the last couple of stages in the mountains it was obvious that he was the best guy in the race there was no question about it and it's been i think that he's probably to think that he can be so successful so consistently with the current level of professional cycling is absolutely astounding so in, in your racing career what do you look at as your best day on the bike best day yeah best day, yeah maybe best base best day you ever had i i lived above Como, Italy, yeah, in a little village called Brunate. Yeah. And there was a cog railroad, a funicolare, that went from Como up to Brunate, and still there. And I mean, it, this thing is, is uh, 10Ks, like straight up, like really a very hard, with switchbacks. And a tiny little road. And uh, it's a, a place where the Milanese Glitterati had built summer homes because it's so hot. In Milan and this place is so high above the lake that it's nice and cool or at least cooler and so the day after the tour of Romandy um, in 1988 I did a, a loop around the entire Lake Como which I think is about 150 k's and on the way up to Brunate it was just one of those magical moments and I looked down and I had done three quarters of the climb and I hadn't shifted out of the big chain ring. I was just, that's the best day. I, uh, just flowing. You're, yeah. you're just flowing along and not even realizing I'm in my big gear and I'm just, I'm just cruising here. Yeah, I, we didn't have power meters in those days, but I was right. really uh, intrigued at what the power numbers were. <laughs> that's where. No, that so, was the best day I ever had. I wasn't at a race even, so. <laughs> yeah. So when you, do you remember when you first started working with, um, uh, with Phil and with Paul? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those were some of the wildest times because Paul Sherwin was on fire and, you know, very classic British commentators. Mm -hmm. But afterwards, it was just a bacchanalian insanity when we you know, I probably did long-term damage to my liver in those years. <laughs> those guys can drink. 
Yeah, until he stopped drinking. But, you know, I was like toe to toe with those guys. And they had already destroyed the career of hundreds of journalists who tried to drink with them. And me and Paul found kindred spirits in each other because we could, you know, go that deep into the night until our demons would have, you know, sort of calmed down and could let us sleep until doing the job again. And, you know, TV is, uh, I mean, it's a, not an easy job. You, you know, it's not, it's like a very intense oh, yeah. few hours, really intense. And so the sort of anti-venom to being that, um, like in, in those intensive hours, when so much information you have to process and, uh, and Paul was an absolute master at doing all of those things. But uh, <laughs> the first few evenings and days of working with Phil and Paul, you know, I, you know, I love the, the drinking afterwards and the socializing. Yes. And in those days, Lance was winning the tour. So yeah, there were just unlimited opportunities to socialize with people. Yeah. And we took advantage <laughs> of all of those. Exactly. <laughs> not, uh, not at yeah. the Tour de France because it, you're traveling to the next day's uh, stage. So there's not as many opportunities. Um, but the rest, the whole rest of the year was just, just awesome. It was so much fun. And so, you know, seeing how much... Phil and Paul enjoyed what they were doing and how good they were, mm -hmm. how legendary. That, you know, for me, it was just a, another one of those magical times to be where I was at, the, at that time. Um, but meeting them, it, you know, they were the, the standard. You know, this is the English commentary. This is it. And to be able to work with them at the tour. And in those days, we did the Giro, all the classics. Walta, yeah. Walta, oh. Worlds. And so Paul, Paul and I became very, very close. And he stopped drinking six or seven years ago. And so, you know, that allowed me to <laughs> taper way back. And it's become... <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I don't, I don't see being at the same, professionally being the same person without Phil and Paul myself. It's yeah, it changes things. I, as a guy who rode the tour for you know and rode so many of the, the major races, coming into it as a commentator, how different was that? You know, like how because yeah. you're so insulated as a cyclist. It's like you you race, you yeah. eat, sleep, race again. Yeah, the, it it helps you understand what they're going through, and every <laughs> every day I'm on TV talking about it i give thanks that i'm not in the race anymore yeah doing it because it's it's so hard and the guys are suffering like animals and that hasn't changed no. um and it's probably gotten worse <laughs> and, and yeah i think it's it's more it's like start to finish every race all year long is incredibly difficult it makes today pogaccia so special as an athlete but also like Christian I, and I now, when after, you know, when we're getting ready for, uh, to call a race, we yeah. look at the profile and we say the same thing. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not doing this one. And then after <laughs> this, 
after every race, we say the same thing. Oh my God, I'm glad I'm talking about it and not doing it. So yeah, yeah it's, it's good though. I think it does help to have done all of those races. Um, it's sometimes your obligations to, you know, the audience don't, don't, you have, you know, a lot of things to you that have to be said. Mm -hmm. And, um, so your responsibility is to make sure you tick all those boxes. And so, um, sometimes the, you know, the basic humanity of what the men and women are going through is, is something that I'd like to, in the future, remind people like, this is what the sport is about <laughs> on the most basic level. Um, and so, well, this year I'm hoping to get back to that a little bit more. And in the early years when we were, Phil and Paul and I were really ex explaining the nuts and bolts. Yeah. Uh, and people were so curious about the sport because Lance was dominating the tour for seven years. Uh, that was, uh, you know, that done, we did, you know, have a very different commentary then than we do now. Of course. Um, and so I think people have a better understanding of what they're watching, but we still have a, a really, you know, tremendous responsibility to explain things based on our experiences of course and without you know bragging about <laughs> your career that's the fine balance you know and a lot of ex-cyclists they have a tendency to well if it was me <laughs> i did win this and then you kind of lose what the riders are going through so i try to not talk about that but uh but yeah, it's really intense experience. And I love, I love doing the commentating. It's just phenomenal. It's great. So one question came in. What is your most treasured item that you kept from your racing days? Woo-wee. Gosh. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't really sort of... You collect memories. You yeah, collect... exactly. I don't have yeah. a lot of memorabilia. Um, gosh. Andy gave us each a pink jersey at the end of the Giro that, that, that he won. won. So that's, that's cool. Probably, yeah. I have that in my bike room. I have that in a frame. <laughs> there you go. Is there a small European race from your racing period that you would recommend today mm. to somebody? To watch or to do? <laughs> you know, I would, I would say to, uh, to do. Oh, man. Wow. I think racing in Italy, the smaller stage races in Italy, is great food. Passionate fans, uh, decent weather usually. Any of those, don't do the Giro. That's <laughs> <laughs> don't even think about doing the Giro. Go straight to the tour because the Giro is twice as hard and you get half as much credit. <laughs> so right. go straight to the tour to front. Brutal, right? Yeah, it's just absolutely grim. And the straight Volta. Up. Don't ever do the Volta. <laughs> What's your proudest achievement both inside and outside of the sport? Well, I paid for my daughter's college education. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. Uh, and so she she just graduated without any student loans. <laughs> um, and in bike racing, just to um, be one of the pioneers has been more and more important to me. And yeah. having um, the imagination to believe it was possible in spite of all the contrary evidence at the time. <laughs> I, I still love the guys sitting in Berkeley watching yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, the bike club was like, wait a minute, that dude is doing Prairie Bay. That's impossible. <laughs> we beat, we drop him every week. What's is it? He's racing. Yeah. Prairie Bay. 
Bobby, I appreciate you taking so much time. That's My pleasure. Always, always so much fun to chat with you. Uh, and let's go. Uh, we'll see, I have a close here. It says, uh, oh, if you have further questions or feedback, please reach out to the speakers directly or send an email to info at enduranceexchange.com. We also ask you to take the session survey, which can be found to the right of this video on your web browser or the Endurance Exchange app and say how much you enjoyed listening to two fun guys just chat about really, really old stuff, which is cool. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you bright and early tomorrow morning, March 2nd, for a morning of Pilates, which Bob and I both do religiously on a daily basis. Yes, we do. Bobke, you are the best, man. Thanks, you see man. Ned out there, say hi to him for me. I'll say hey to Ned. Tell him, you need, tell him your scrambler broke down while you were <laughs> duck hunting and you need someone to come fix it. I'm going to ask him about Amway. That I didn't know about the Amway chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I told him, I said, Ned, you're going to buy the product and then you're going to end up giving it away.